Hello and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 4th, otherwise known as National Golf Day. America's favorite pastime, right? Yeah, I played one year of golf in high school. Ooh, I played a semester in college. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, what happened? You just went straight to the pros after that or? <laughs> I just had to get one PE credit, I think. Oh, okay. That makes sense. We got out an hour. Obligation. Yeah, we got out of class an hour early to go play golf. So that was an easy yes for me. It's pretty fun. Pretty fun. Maybe I'll get into it in like, I don't know, 40 years or something. I'll be back on the links. But until then. Yeah, I feel like once you uh, get to the legal age to play golf, you must also drink beer. They go hand in hand. I'll have so to start well. then. Yeah, that's it. That's what's going to do it, Chris. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I'm, if I'm golfing, I'm drinking. I played and golf like a handful of times and... It was all right. It was just kind of kind of boring. Kind of what it looks like. So the way I think of it is if you're with a group of friends that if you're not doing anything and you would have fun with, golf is great. Hmm. Because that's basically what you're doing. It's the same thing as just sitting on the deck shooting shit, but instead you're just walking around hitting golf balls. So then it is like drinking because if you're doing it alone, you got a problem. <laughs> there we go. I just think also thinks like 18 holes is too much. Like I think like six One. holes is like pretty good. Like, like, yeah. Especially, around, especially, especially, especially if you're not very good. <laughs> right. Because those holes take a long time to get, uh, to get made. Indeed. Yeah. We have a, we had a little nine hole golf course that we would go to a lot of times. There was two that were equally distance from our school. So sometimes we would go and just hit nine holes. And then other times we would go to the other golf course because they had a good driving range. And all enjoyed. All right, so what are you guys working on? No, 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 I wasn't done. I still got more on golf. <laughs> that was my segue out of this. Oh, man. Sure beats walking. <laughs> all right. Ben, you've been in Morocco. That's right. <laughs> I have been in Marrakesh and then New York. So been traveling a bit. Morocco was amazing. Like I had never really spent much time in Northern Africa. And it's funny, like, for some reason, I never really associate, like, Morocco and Egypt and those sort of northern African countries as Africa, but yeah. they are. And uh, <laughs> Morocco was, was, was crazy. Marrakesh in particular is this city that has this, it's, it's like a maze of these, like, little narrow alleys that are built up, like, sheer straight walls with very few windows, just doors uh, every once in a while. And they're built up about two to three stories high, but they might only be like six to eight feet wide. And it's they're not like straight roads with that are connected into a grid. It, it really is like a maze that goes down and under and around and underneath buildings. And it's it feels like you're playing a first-person shooter game as oh, you're yeah. walking around the streets. <laughs> and then... Uh, we stayed in a in what's called a riad, which is sort of like a a courtyard uh, sort of villa. And me and my buddy Sean, who's an architecture friend from grad school, we rented this basically this whole palace to ourselves. And it was only about three hundred and fifty bucks a night, but it was like a four bedroom, four to six bedroom palace with this big courtyard. I threw it up on the on the gram. I think it's still in my the highlights of my stories if you want to see a little tour. And it's just an insane experience because you're going from this super dense alley that's kind of like noisy and chaotic and there's like people occasionally riding by on a motorcycle down this alley, which seems a little bit dangerous. Cats everywhere, no dogs. Marrakesh is a cat city, which I don't, don't know how I feel about that, but uh, it made it kind of interesting. I think you did a really cool job of distilling some of the ideas and inspiration through your Instagram stories. You did a good job of just focusing on the small details that are good takeaways rather than a bunch of really wide kind of landscape shots. It was a bunch of small details that collectively kind of tell the story or at least a theme throughout. Yeah, when I, when I travel, I, I want to share that first-person perspective. The, the last thing you want to do is take the postcard shot of like, Here's a big statue in a town square because those exactly. kind of look the same everywhere. It's just like a different statue of a different dude. Um, yeah. And somebody else has probably already taken the picture and better. But it was the textures, the colors, the patterns that are kind of repeating across the city that are really cool to see. Right. So, you know, it, it, and then there's this weird transition from the maze-like city and then you pop into one of these riads or palaces and then it like all opens up with a big courtyard and then bedrooms and lounging rooms sort of built around 
that courtyard. And it's, it's, it's really a functional type of architecture because it's a hot city, but that courtyard, and it's a very vertical one, it might be three stories high, vents out all the hot air. So it was cool just staying in really old world architecture that's still functional today and kind of feeling like you're getting immersed back into time or at least like a Disney movie like Aladdin or something like that. Um, Did you ride any camels or wild beasts? Or find any genies? Camels, yes. Uh, so I, the the primary purpose of the trip was my friend Christian Dunbar, who's a furniture designer and former male model. Yes, we give make a lot of Zoolander jokes. Um, <laughs> he is marrying one of the hosts from Trading Spaces and a very famous interior designer, Genevieve Gorder. Shout out. And, my mom's a big fan. Yeah. She's... She, Awesome, awesome people. And, you know, what's crazy is that I knew, I've known Christian for over 10 years, but I, I almost have more friends in common with Genevieve. Uh, she's actually friends with Jimmy DiResta and like uh, Trent Pretzler from uh, the, the, you know, the canoe dude. Canoe. Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to my mom on the phone for some reason. I can't quite remember why, but she follows you on Instagram, Ben. And she says, what has Ben doing with Genevieve Porter? And I now know who she is, but just right off the top, I'm like, first off, I don't know who that is, and I have no idea. But yeah, yeah. probably just weird stuff. Definitely not as yeah, definitely not being salty because yeah, yeah, my mom apparently watches a lot of her show. Yeah, she's she's a great designer and a lot of fun. But it was it was probably one of the coolest weddings I've ever been to. They had the wedding out in the desert of Morocco, like right at the base of the Atlas Mountains. I've wow. never heard of the Atlas Mountains, really, but like Atlas Mountains sounds like so legit. <laughs> They're and, like hardcore sounding, like very rugged. Right, and so they had these like these Moroccan tents to make like a like a square, and then all these Moroccan rugs just laid out on the desert with these like little like uh, Moroccan kind of poofs and low couches and stuff like that. It was all decked out, super picturesque. There was camels, and yeah, it was just a blast. They it started raining like during the the ceremony, and then there was a lightning storm, but everyone just kind of rolled with it and was. <laughs> Just, 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 uh, just killing it. The, the other, the other really interesting part is the shopping experience. And Marrakesh is really known for this really dense, intense shopping district. So it's like a, there's like another little shop that sells handmade brass things, or they have really inexpensive leather goods. It's a very craft and textile focused culture, and it's a one that focuses really on incredibly intricate stuff. So they do a lot of really intricate wood inlays where they'll cut the wood into like little tiny geometric shapes, glue them all together, and then make these beautiful veneers to make boxes. So the applicable stuff that I took was, from an overview, it really challenged some ideas about, hmm, maybe I should think more about adding more color, texture, and pattern to design. Because when you see it over there, it, it, it can be pretty mind-blowing. The, the other thing, as it applies directly to something like woodworking, was they're really good at doing intricate stuff, but they do it kind of at different scales. So if they're doing like a little wooden box, they'll make incredibly precise, you know, sort of veneers that they then sort of you know, laminate onto sort of other woods. Or they'll do really intricate carved textured patterns. But the part that I thought, and when I look at that kind of stuff, I'm like, hmm. That's a little too precious and also just a little too tedious for me. But the part that the part that I got excited about is they'll make bigger things that are more like like a door to a house. And it's intricate, but it's intricate in a slightly in a way that isn't meant to be looked at super up close. It's intricate to be looked at from 10 feet away. And so when you when you're walking down the street, you're like that door is amazing. And you look up close, you say, "Oh, it's it's not perfect." But it doesn't matter. It's still awesome. Other cool things is the way they make like wardrobes and stuff like that. They'll they'll make these sort of perforated wood screens uh, that are yeah. sort of made out of a bunch of pieces. And again, it's like the carving is is a little bit on the rough side, but it they it, there's no splinters, and the the texture and pattern kind of hides the roughness. And it just so it's sort of like this. It looks like it was made by like a uh, a Stone Age CNC. <laughs> um, <laughs> But the overall aesthetic is incredible. But so, the, but the idea is just like scaling the the size of the te- or the pattern, right? Okay, very right. Cool. So th- th- there's some definitely some good takeaways. Check out my Instagram. I made a lot of posts, and then uh, K 
came back here and then went to New York for a startup thing called UrbanX, which is an accelerator that features, you know, a bunch of startups that are trying to do sort of good things for urban life and for cities that are related to sustainability and things like that. So before you go into all of that, can we save that for next week? Because I think that's a great precursor for a topic. All right. Save it. The idea of coming up with an idea, prepping a pitch what to look for with who you're talking to, and then maybe the, the steps after if you're a winner. Oh, you yeah. Know, that yeah. could be cool. Pitching. Pitching yeah. would be a good uh, a good topic. All right, we will so, definitely pitch. forget that. Look out oh, for next episode. The title of of next week, so. Pitch. so I'll throw it over to Chris. What have you been working well, on? Real quick, I had a question that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask because I know my parents listen every week, and so they already know where I'm going with this. But when I was in about second grade, they took me to uh, Disney World, and we were at Epcot Center. And one of the places they have at Epcot Center is Morocco, and it smelled very bad there. And I remember <laughs> asking my parents, like, does the whole country smell like this? So Ben, did it stink? Um, yes, in places. It absolutely <laughs> yes. smelled like – well, you know what's funny? Uh, <laughs> so, it wasn't a lie. Epcot's true to life. Uh, me and my buddy Sean have traveled like at, like to every part of the the world together. I think we've been on like five different continents on sort of random adventures. And we're walking down this alley. We're getting in. We hadn't slept. It was a long flight. And there's cats everywhere. And you know what? Yeah, not the biggest cat person. But uh, so we finally get to the end of this alley where the door to our Riyadh is. And there's like three cats just hanging out there. And just as we're walking up, one cat just like takes a shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> like right known. in front of our door. And then the next morning, two other cats had taken a shit right next to it where that cat had already shit. And then it's, ganging up it became like this thing that's like every day we like inside the, the palace like smelled amazing. Like it smelled like, cause they have these like fountains that they put like these, you know, essential oils in. So, and they have all these spices and stuff. And when you've been smelling cat shit all day, anything smells amazing. You take anything. What is that? Cat piss? This is great. <laughs> so it's, but it's like, so when you're in the palace, it was like beautiful, peaceful, tranquil, you know, nice smelling thing. And then the minute you step out into the city, it's like, oh, cat shit alley. Is that um, kind of common in developing <laughs> countries though? Um, it depends. It, it it depends on if you're in more rural versus urban. But I would yeah, say hot, a lot of people. A lot crammed together, lots of spices. Yeah, <laughs> too much but, curry, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's all, <laughs> you can see where this is going. It also happens in like places in the U.S. I mean, if you go oh, to for sure. New Orleans, like it can be a little bit, a little stinky. Oh yeah, before the street sweepers get And hello to all our there. New Orleans listeners. Yeah. All right, Chris, your turn. <laughs> yeah. What's happening, dude? Uh, olfactory. It's been very pleasant where I am. <laughs> smells great and wittier right now. Let's see. So I put out a video with a wardrobe. Yeah, I called it that. Apparently, it's a clothing rack, though. I guess a clothing a, a, a wardrobe is closed. But anyway, um, yeah, actually, it's done a lot better. Or the the response to it has been better than I thought it was. Yes. Not that I would ever want to put out something where I'm like, oh, people are going to hate this. But uh, yeah, I figured, oh, this would be something that very few people could use. But I've gotten Disagree. a ton of comments from people that are like, oh, this would be perfect where I live. Totally. Yeah. So I guess there's a, a lot of places that don't have closets. No, Apartments, everyone man. needs more storage space. I, I actually think wardrobes are, an, are a really cool, underutilized project in our community. I think people avoid things with doors in general. But I also think they're a huge opportunity because you have so much surface area to work with. Yeah, Chris, yeah, ever well, since I saw your last video where you did the trick for flush trimming your doors to the case of the cabinet it's got yep. me a lot more inclined to go for something like that you ready to flush trim up them doors yeah have a good old time yeah so uh so back to this one since it's so open and like i figured oh yeah not many people would want this i thought well it serves the purpose for what i want to build it for which was to be a display somewhere but also i thought well it's a design that you could easily adapt into like an open bookshelf or you could throw a cabinet into it if you wanted some closed storage so i figured i'd just put it out and like people could enjoy it from that perspective but i've been surprised that they've enjoyed it in a more like i don't know direct or literal translation that they could just take right over to something that they would want to build yeah uh other than that not much else is new so I know we, we have a, a big interview that we're going to do in this one, so I don't want to take up too much time. So I'll just throw it over to you, Mike. I know you're still building a bathroom. I am neck deep. No, I'm underwater in, in this thing, crap. man. Yeah. I am. It's no joke. Learning things that you have never done before 
is great and terrible at the same time. Exactly. For one, because we're filming it. So all these times that I'm messing up, I'm also going back and deleting the footage because I don't have to want I don't want to have to go through it later. So just from a sake of setting up a shot, doing something, then doing it wrong, then having to redo that over and over again, that is a little bit frustrating. But the real challenge for this has been installing the new tub and shower. In my last bathroom renovation video, I think I mentioned it last week. It was kind of the the vanity things. It was very simple. Imagine you move into a house and you want to spruce it up. That's kind of what I went for. Kept the tile, kept the tub, but replaced countertops and some of the fixtures. But on this one I'm working now, it's ground up. Tore out the tub, tore out the shower, the vanity, the toilet, everything. I'm watching a ton of YouTube videos. I think my history has never been more full of tutorials. I'm going to have to shout out a few of them in the video because there's a few content creators out there that are doing the home renovation thing and they're doing it really, really well. I wish I prepped a little bit more so I could give shout outs here, but look forward to the the video when it comes out and I'll be sure to reference them in the description of that, if not next week or for my obsession sometime. But, but yeah, I've been struggling this week trying to install a new tub and shower The floors in that bathroom are pretty wonky, so I went ahead and just decided I'm going to float a new floor across the entire bathroom. That way, whenever it comes to putting the tub in, which was the main concern, it'll just sit flat. It'll be good. I don't have to do all of this mortar underneath the tub to level it. If I just have a good starting point, then that could save a few headaches down the road. Uh, Whenever I'm installing tile, that's going to be amazing. It's going to be super smooth doing it that way, and it's just... I don't know. It was something I'd never done anyways, so I, I was happy to give it a shot and have good results. But if you're following along on my Instagram stories, you will have seen me working on it, and I've got an Instagram highlight on my profile that is titled Bathroom Reno. So if you want to keep up, keep up with that, make sure and check that out. But nothing crazy to report on, just a lot of trips back and forth to Home Depot. I've made really good friends with Dave, the plumbing guy at the Midwest City <laughs> store, so Shout out to Dave. You are saving my butt on this one, man. Wait, so you're installing the tub yourself? Yes. And has it just been challenging to get it to line up and at the right height and all that stuff? Yeah, Yeah, especially because it's old rough-in plumbing. And so the things that are standard now is not what was standard then. So I'm having to retrofit and get all these kind of different connectors and extenders to make to make what I want to go in there fit. But I'm excited about it. It's a lot of fun. I'm learning a lot. I'm getting really frustrated. I'm cursing more than I normally do. But all in all, it's for the best because whenever I go to build a house, it's going to be easy compared to this. Yeah. Did you hopefully. have to sweat any copper or, or lay any pipe or do anything like that? Or I've been laying pipe, but no, I didn't sweat any copper. <laughs> Mike's always laying pipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it it it's hard. That kind of yeah, that kind of yeah, trade stuff is is is, is really right. tricky. And even if you're, you know, even if you're a relative expert and have done multiple remodels, what you brought up about how oh you're you're trying to marry really old stuff to to newer stuff can present a whole series of challenges right there. But it's interesting because. I've learned or I'm working on something that would be harder than building new. And so when it does come time to building a new house, it's going to be amazing because I'm not fighting working in this alcove of the bathroom. I would have access behind the tub through the wall. But on this, I don't want to go cutting into the drywall of the living room to get access to the plumbing behind the tub. So it's really good in the idea of being prepped for new construction. Yeah. if, If that makes any sense. It kind of sounds like then, okay, obviously the simplest thing would be like the previous bathrooms that you've done where it's just like skin deep basically. Or then the second easiest would just be going like completely gutting. So you're doing everything new so that you are building the infrastructure that you're building everything else on top of, but you're in like a weird negative Goldilocks middle zone where it's the worst situation. Right, because I don't want to destroy too many things. I want to keep the demolition focused in the bathroom. So I don't want to have to dry, tear out the drywall right. that's going into the, the yeah, living like room or anything. bedroom or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. There's way more considerations than if I just went balls to the wall. Yeah, gotcha. But all in all, it's a lot of fun. I'm really happy about it. But whoa, wait, what is that? We've got a breaking report. It just got onto my desk. Chris, are you seeing this? That's right, Mike. I am seeing it. It's uh, hot off the presses. Ben, you're live on the scene. Way to throw it to your Asian 
correspondent live on the scene. <laughs> Half Asian correspondent. <laughs> we keep him in the. Ah, uh, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> uh, uh, so all of Instagram is in a. I would say a tizzy. Yes, that's uh, a great word. Tizzy fit. And it's about river tables, but this time it's not about whether or not they're overrated, underrated, or properly rated. It's about the uh, legal ramifications because word on the street is that Greg Klassen or Klassen? Klassen, I think. Klassen, uh, who uh, popularized the river table, has... Choice words. Yes. About a month ago, (laughs) procured a trademark for the word river as it relates to primarily wood furniture and artwork. Wow. Wow. But not Legos, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm breathing a sigh of relief over here. But this is crazy. This is pretty big news because right, and it goes it goes way further than just people buying and or building and selling river tables. People are using that on social media like crazy. People are making YouTube videos about it like crazy. Not to mention the people that are building and selling them. It's all over Etsy. It's all over. I mean, I would assume Craigslist, all over the place. Anywhere people are making or selling wooden furniture, river tables are there. Yes. So river tables are probably the biggest trend I've seen in the last two years in woodworking. You know, so he trademarked it. Uh, I think the way it sort of happened is he sent a letter to Etsy letting them know that he was going to enforce his trademark. Etsy then let their sort of, you know, there's a whole bunch of people selling river tables on Etsy. Etsy let its sellers know that they need to not use that term in terms of describing it. That's when I think sort of the news broke. And then a whole bunch of people on Instagram started posting and talking about it. Now there's a a few pretty large Instagram accounts that have used that term river table and produce a ton of content about uh, river table-ish. A lot of them do it with with uh, epoxy some do it with glass the same way greg does and uh people were were pissed and had a lot of uh, opinions and wrote a lot of things and as i was going through some of these posts i immediately saw that there was you know people were saying things like well he didn't even invent it my grandpa you know made a table with two live edge slabs facing each other and we called it this table and and i remember uh my uncle said that it looks like a river and people were going on and on uh, you know and it's, it was actually getting a little bit hostile towards uh, Greg in a lot of cases. And then when it wasn't, it was sort of, you know, people sort of saying, well, you didn't make it. You're just making money off of, you know, something else this guy worked really hard on. And then the other guy would be like, well, F you. I work hard, too. And it, it wasn't very productive. So I don't believe it. An Internet conversation got heated. Wow. So first, right. so but we're here to settle that we're here to settle everything. We've got our legal expert Mike Clifford from the channel Industrial Maker. Ben and Mike sat down for a one-on-one chit chat about all of it to line it out, what it means for the people that are using the term, what it means for the people that are building those type of tables, all of that kind of stuff. So we ready to send it to the interview? Yeah, let's send it to the interview uh, with Mike Clifford. Shout out Mike Clifford. He is at Medustrial Maker on Instagram and YouTube. Go support. And he's an intellectual property lawyer. So this is, you know, he's an expert. Yeah, we should have probably led with that. (laughs) All right. Here's the interview. All right. So Ben here, and I'm joined by a special guest and legal expert, at least, well, one of the most legal expert people that we know, uh, Mike Clifford, who is, I believe, an IP attorney. Yes, IP. And that stands for intellectual property? Correct. And so your day job involves what? So I, I do uh, intellectual property encompasses uh, generally copyrights, trademarks, patents, uh, some unfair competition and other things. But those three areas of, of copyrights, patents, trademarks are the main areas. I do mostly patent law. So my job is to help inventors uh, obtain protection for their inventions by obtaining patents from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, I also do some uh, trademark work to help help people obtain trademarks um, to protect uh, words, images that identify the source of uh, a good or service, which is what a trademark does. 
And that's that's and what I do day out. I see you're already sort of alluding to the difference between a patent and a trademark. And then a copyright, that's a third thing as well, yes. correct? Yeah. All right. So why don't you sort of give us the, the, the brief differences between a patent, a trademark, and a copyright? Okay, sure. So it's very, and I think a lot of people get this, uh, get confused. So it's, it's very important to kind of keep those areas separate because they protect different types of things and give people different rights who have them. Um, so a trademark is something that is will typically protect brand names and logos that are used on goods and services and is supposed to help identify the source of a good. Uh, it's really kind of a um, anti-counterfeit mechanism. Um, the primary purpose of a trademark is to prevent customer confusion amongst product or service offerings. A copyright is something that's going to protect an original artistic or literary work. So a song or a, a book, a YouTube video, those are things that are protected by copyright. Uh, a patent protects an invention. So it's usually something that's functional. So it's either gonna be a system or a method uh, or an apparatus, something that actually functions to achieve some benefit. Uh, and so that's what what a patent protects. Okay, so to, so to recap, if you're Ryobi and you cr- invent a new type of drill or saw, that invention you would patent. Right. But the name Ryobi and the branding uh, related to that that brand is would be trademarked and then if they made a YouTube video that was promoting how the drill works, that YouTube video could be copyrighted. Right. I, I think that's exactly on point. So yeah, the patent would protect the uh, new mechanism that allows the drill to uh, have higher torque with a quieter mechanism or, you know, quite while producing right. less sound. Um, the trademark is the Ryobi logo. Um, you could actually get a mark or a trade dress on the, Ryobi green for mm-hmm. you know, within the area of tools, their lime green color. Um, so you, they could actually trademark like that specific, like the numeric description of that color in as it relates to tools. Like they they couldn't could they trademark that just for universal use in no. business? Or no, that's it. Trademarks are very limited in scope to what they the source of the goods that they identify, uh, and that's actually the color is something called trade dress. It's sort of a variant of trademark law that is colors or sort of descriptive visual aspects of products. All right. So let's, let's get to the issue at hand. So the woodworking and well, more the woodworking world than the maker world. Um, although those two things are, are overlapped was all in a tizzy over <laughs> Greg, uh, uh, Klassen, uh, trademarking. I don't know if it was river table or the term river as it applies to furniture. Correct. So actually I, I've got the trademark in front of me here, the registered trademark. Uh, and, and it is the word river, not river table. And that's actually something important we should get back to later. But uh, so the word river uh, used and goods and services uh, that include furniture made primarily from wood and works of art made primarily of wood. Uh, and so it's, it's limited to those areas, uh, which interestingly doesn't actually specifically name tables. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's his mark and that is in the description so if you're selling a table uh you would infringe his trademark by using the word river in the description of your table that's made primarily of wood uh that you are you're selling so to be clear this is not a patent so everyone that's been freaking out saying does this mean i no longer can make a quote-unquote river table right that's it, it in no way applies to that you can still make that those sort of typical tables and that are you know two sort of slabs of wood with some sort of slab of translucent or other material in between them that sort of resembles a river but the trademark is really just applying to how you sort of name and call things as it sort of relates to selling it or doing commerce Correct. That that is all it's all it means is that you cannot use that word to describe your product. You could make something that's made in the exact same way using the same techniques and methods that looks very similar to what Greg Clausen makes. You just can't call it a river table anymore. You have to think of something else. And uh, so he is in no way impacting anybody's ability to make anything that they want. 
he's only impacting somebody's ability to sell products or sell something or market something in relation to the same thing that he calls his line of furniture. Yes, correct. And I, and I think it's actually, well, it's important to say it's it's not just limited to sales. Like, I mean, and I think there's actually a question, something I've been wondering about and I've been looking into, and I actually don't quite have a definitive answer. It's like whether this would apply to uh, a river table YouTube video that shows someone how to make it. Um, you're not actually competing with him. That's that's kind of a an interesting question that, that I've been thinking about. But yeah, back to the the fundamental question you asked is no, it does not prevent you from making, using, or selling anything. It only affects the way you describe the goods and services that you are making, using, and selling. And then let's take this a step farther because I think this is a part with sort of legal issues that doesn't get discussed enough is enforcement. I've been, you know, I've had intellectual property protected before and had it, uh, those, at least in my opinion, those protections violated. Mm-hmm. But what I learned is that enforcement is totally different from just having the patent or trademark yes. or copyright. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's expensive. I, I, You know, Greg had a, uh, I believe, a cease and desist letter sent to Etsy. Um, and that was what prompted all this hysteria is when Etsy went to sellers and said, take down your listings um, because they were selling river tables. That was probably pretty expensive for him to do, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, he was having to pay an attorney to to write that letter and to negotiate with Etsy and, you know, they, it cost him money. Now, if you're doing that all over the place, if you're trying to do that for every individual, if say every cease and desist letter is going to cost him 500 to to $1,000 to send out, right. practically and I think, speaking, it's going to be difficult for him to enforce against well, everyone. I think I can guess the business reasons why he targeted Etsy because I did a quick Google search and granted, you know, everyone's preferences relative to their search history for, the, you know, River Table is going to be a little bit different. But Etsy uh, was a pretty dominant, uh, uh, was dominating a lot of the returns for River Table. So it makes sense to direct financial resources if you're if you're him to something like that, which is owning a lot of the search results through their, their massive volume and their sort of multiple content contributors. So it makes sense that he would go after Etsy. It will be interesting to see if, uh, I I can't imagine, and again, this is just me wildly speculating, and I won't ask you to do the same since your speculation has more (laughs) sort of legal ramifications. I can't imagine him going after, you know, particular YouTubers that have created a river table, because even if he was to, I mean, and, and sort of jump in if you sort of hear me saying something that you sort of disagree with, from what I understand, he could send a cease and desist letter, which doesn't mean you go to jail if you ignore it. It just means that it's sort of the rattling of the sabers getting ready for some sort of legal thing. But hey, mm-hmm. why don't you just stop and we'll call it a day. Yeah. If it actually did get to the point where he was suing for damages, that would probably only make sense from a financial standpoint if somebody had done like hundreds of millions of views so that there was enough kind of money generated where right. he, he could actually recoup something that would, you know, make it worth the time, stress, and uh, legal fees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're looking at a minimum of, you know, ten to $20,000 in fees if, you know, the case just, like, settles out right away, but it can go way up in cost. So the costs of enforcing a trademark through a, an actual trademark litigation are going to be very, uh, you know, very expensive for him to do. And I guess I do want to back up. You mentioned one thing as far as legal ramifications. One thing I do want to make clear is that, you know, anyone out here who's listening to this, I definitely want to help inform people, help them understand what's going on. But what we're talking about here is a is a general view of, of legal implications of the uh, river trademark and is not actually legal advice that's specific to anyone out there's own situation. So if you have, uh, you know, if you're affected by this, um, or you're you're acting, uh, you know, in some way, you shouldn't, you shouldn't rely on this as legal advice to go out and take action. You might get an idea, but definitely consult an attorney about your specific situation before you take any action based on what we say here today. Right. It's it's, it's the same thing. If you're, you know, this happens a lot with doctors on 
podcasts or in media is that they have to always say, well, consult your own doctor. Don't right. take it from this. I'm right. just providing information in that area. Yeah. This is like the drug commercial that has a list of disclaimers at the end. Right. So like one of the reactions that I saw was like, well, I'm just going to go and get a trademark on. Actually, people were using the term patent. Well, I'm going to go patent this and patent this and trademark right. this and trademark that. I always kind of laugh when people say that. And in general, when I've talked to a lot of Art, artisan makers if they're and they feel, feel they came up with something new either a new idea or a new way to sort of label and describe something they're often saying oh i think i'm gonna i think i really got something here i think i'm gonna patent this or trademark it and my, in general my business advice is eh, unless you actually see millions of dollars over a million dollars of uh, of revenue coming from this it's probably not worth it right, right. it's probably not worth it to well patents uh, yes trademarks yeah. can be useful um mm-hmm. the trademarks are less expensive uh to to get and they can be useful patents are more expensive so you really got to do the research if it's worth you know ten twenty thousand dollars to get the patent and then uh move forward with actually threatening enforcement or trying to license it's a very expensive proposition and not every invention is worth worth it even if it's a good idea and so what would you estimate having, you know, broad ballpark uh, that a patent like the one that uh, for, for the river furniture slash artwork? Do, what do you, you think? Sorry, the trademark. Yeah. Or that's sorry, that trademark. Yeah. What, what would you estimate that something like like that would cost? Um, so, I mean, there's there's like fly by night services. You can go and try and get a trademark for five hundred dollars online. You're they're not very good. Um, you know, I usually quote people in the ballpark of fifteen hundred to to 2500 is sort of a ballpark starting range and again don't hold me to that but that's sort of right. usually the quote to obtain a trademark and i'm guessing he used i looked at it he used a, a sort of reputable attorney and i think he probably paid you know somewhere in that ballpark and and he definitely the, the attorney did a good job so he definitely got his money's worth on this one so yeah that's that's sort of the just the, the stepping stone to play the game um hmm. although we should actually back up one interesting thing about a trademark. Um, when you say obtaining it, what he did is called registering a trademark. Um, and so he registered it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Now, you don't actually need to do that technically to own a trademark. A trademark is acquired through use, so by using a trademark in commerce. So, for example, you you probably haven't, uh, I don't know if you, maybe you do have a trademark on, uh, registered for homemade modern. Mm-hmm. Um but you would have one actually anyway, even if you haven't registered it, because of the fact you've been using it in commerce in the space of you know DIY tutorials uh, for furniture, uh, you have that trademark. What would vary is the strength of the mark and the ability to uh, in- enforce it. Um, hmm. So uh, when you register it, you can now actually you know when you sue people, you could make them pay damages uh, for lost profits and things like that. Whereas before, if you didn't register it, you could basically spend a bunch of money and all you could do is say stop. Right. Um, okay, so, so the the trademark isn't, your trademark is created when you start using it. The right. registration is seeking the legal, uh, the legal sort of government recognition that you have been using it. Correct, yes. Gotcha. So it's sort of like a common law marriage, I guess, versus... Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That'd be, right. That's a good analogy. It, there's there's difference. One's more enforceable and has more things, but there doesn't mean that uh, it's magically created by that sort of, you know, that stroke of the pen when you sign that deal. Correct. Correct. It's like it exists whether it's there or not, and it's just the recognition that it exists by the government authority is, is okay. the, the process that you go through. So to, to sort of recap with the the river things, probably can't sell stuff on Etsy or sort of especially big third party things that are titled River Table or River Artwork or things like that. Yes, the artwork thing's really interesting. Like, what if somebody, like the thing that I'm when 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 you were talking to, I was thinking about if what if somebody painted a landscape on a a landscape of a river on a piece of plywood, right? Uh, right, and that would be so. One, it would be silly for someone like Greg to to go after that practically, and even if they did, it would be he would have to spend money at, and the the person he'd be suing would have to uh, have produced quite a bit of money for him to sort of actually recoup anything. Correct. It would be very hard to him show because at the end of the day, he's going to have to show some sort of damages to recoup something. It would be hard to be show that that somehow harmed his sales 
of his, you know, river tables. And he, he, he included, I'm looking at the trademark application now. I think he did include some picture or some sort of wall mounted river artwork as an example of, of what the trademark would cover. But again, it's the same thing with the glass down the middle. So yeah, I think, uh, it would technically be within the scope of infringement. And if you know of it, but the, the fact is like someone who's doing that probably isn't even like aware of this or aware that right. it would be infringing, um, a trademark. And, and also like Greg would be very probably unlikely to even find that unless you, you know, Google search maybe would river right. wall piece or something. I, I, I think, you know, and this is as a practical matter. I mean, one piece of advice I can definitely give is that if you're not selling tables that compete with, Greg's, you know, you might just try and reach out to him. Like I, I've been sort of following everything and he doesn't seem like he's a bad guy. He's, he's using a trademark in a way that he feels is right, that he, he created this table that's become this, you know, sensation online. And he's got all these people who are copying it and diluting his ability to sell his table for the price that he feels it deserves. Um, and you know, if you're not doing that, if you're some other use or something that you think is just like a different design uh, entirely that uses, but river is a really good descriptive word for it. You know, I would just say, reach out to Greg and be like, Hey, this is what I'm making. Are you going to do anything? And he might just say, no, go ahead. Um, he mm-hmm. doesn't seem, I, I don't know him personally, but he doesn't, it seems like he's somebody who wants to do the right thing and is just trying to protect his own work from what I've kind of seen online. Right. And um, and going after Etsy, Etsy is the people that use Etsy as a platform are small and scrappy. And a lot of them are trying to do that. But there's also companies that are using Etsy's sort of like one off craft things, but are actually doing mass produced stuff that are sold on Etsy. Him going after Etsy is in no ways like him picking on a bunch of little people. That's him saying to a big internet company say, that that's able to monopolize search engine uh, uh, results and telling them, hey, I worked really hard. I popularized this term. Again, he's not, from what I understand, he's not claiming he is the first person to make a quote-unquote river table. Correct. I think that was one of the things that people got really up in arms with because they're saying like, no, I've seen these these tables before this, guy's, uh, before this guy came along. He did not invent this concept of putting, you know, two slabs of wood with something sort of translucent in between. My grandfather did that, you know, so... Uh, again, he's not saying he invented it. He's saying that he popularized and, at least in the business context, that term as it applies to furniture and art and therefore. So that made me think of like, you know, I guess the in, in my work, the most applicable similar thing would be the bucket stool. Um, right. Where it's like, obviously, I, I'm sure someone has stuck sticks in a bucket with some sort of plaster or cementitious material or concrete, you know, thousands of years ago and, and, and made something that they sat on. So, but, uh, you know, if I I would never do this because I don't care and I don't think it makes sense for me business wise, but the term bucket stool would be the thing that would, would be analogous that I could potentially trademark. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I think, uh, so you've raised a really important point that also is a, a distinction between where people get confused between patent and trademark law. So with a patent, if you want to get a patent on an invention, you absolutely have to be the first person to invent it. If somebody else comes up with the idea in their basement, but they've invented it before and you are not the first inventor, you can't get a patent on it. A trademark, you just have to be the one who is in some sense, maybe the first to start popularizing it and using it in commerce. So somebody else could have made river tables in their basement, maybe even like sold it to a friend and you saw it, you went and you turned that into a business selling river tables and you're the one who popularizes it. You can get a trademark, even though somebody else came up with it, you got used their idea. You're the one who popularized it. Um, And in fact, if a trademark goes out of use, you can actually, a new owner can reintroduce it and and own it um there's actually uh some companies out there that look for old recognizable brands that are no longer in use and file intent to use applications and will like strike deals with generics to rebrand them um one thing if you remember nuprin the little yellow pill that went out of use a while ago and uh there was actually a company that went out that wasn't making you know painkillers and but filed an intent to use trademark application and then struck a deal with a generic sort of aspirin manufacturer to use the Nuprin trademark. And so they kind of like 
found mm-hmm. almost almost like a trademark rotter. But that's that's sort of a difference with trademarks and uh, patents is that you don't necessarily have to be the first to use uh, mm-hmm. the trademark. You just have to bring it to commerce. Oh, one other thing that sort of struck me is that you said in the trademark it refers to things that are primarily made of wood. So yes. that means if you made a river table that was primarily made of resin. Uh, that is okay. Let's let's back up. Um, that I think is a very interesting thing um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because I th- I believe that, and I tend to actually agree with them. Greg has been pretty disparaging of epoxy resin resin river tables because he thinks they look like crap compared to to wood uh, or sorry to glass. Um, and I I kind of tend to agree with them, just my personal taste. Um, so that that's interesting. Uh, there's some other parts that it is a different material and he doesn't actually make it. Um, but the standard is whether it's, there's some likelihood of confusion. Would you confuse an a, a epoxy resin river table with Greg's as being the source? And so mm-hmm. it's all about consumer protection, counterfeiting. Would you confuse it as being the source? So he's kind of saying that's a cheap knockoff of mine uh, and I want to protect it. It would be, I think, his stance because I think he did, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. I think part of what he asked Etsy to do is take down a lot of the epoxy resin river tables. I think though, to kind of fully understand that I want to go back and talk about there's sort of four categories of trademarks. And this is where I think, so the epoxy resin river table kind of falls in this category. This is what at the heart of what people are actually really upset about is that the term river is really just describing how the table looks. And I think that the reason that the sellers on Etsy are getting so upset about, you know, once they do understand that it is just them having to relist it, but not being able to call it an, a river table is because they feel like that is really, when you look at it, like that's what it looks like. It looks like a river. It's blue flowy stuff flowing down the middle of wood. It, right. It's not like you trademarked the Clausen table. Right. Right. Or it's Which, not like it's like a river furniture company. As, right. as like a name that doesn't sort of disassociated from the look of the table. So um, so backing up then, there's there's sort of four categories of trademarks. And they uh, starting sort of with the strongest marks would be trademarks that are considered fanciful or arbitrary. So a fanciful uh, trademark is like a company name that's like a made up word. Like, like when Nike. Nike, yeah. Google, when Google came out. These are fanciful. Uh, uh, fanciful marks those are strong because they're just sort of random words that are used to identify a brand so they're they're the relationship between the brand is strong and uh you know but they have no relationship with the actual good being sold that's actually better for a trademark term and then arbit uh sorry arbitrary uh is a real world word but has no real association or relationship with the goods that are uh, being protected. I think you could argue like if you had river furniture that right. without anything that looked like a river, that mm-hmm. would sort of be a, you know an arbitrary term. And I think because of the way that he did the trademark application, that's kind of how the trademark office viewed it. Uh, mm. and, and so that's kind of an important thing. Uh, his attorney was smart. He, th- there's a reason his, he attorney- sort of split, he sort of split the difference and yeah. let, right. But, him doing that, right? Does that make it if if something ever did go to an actual trial or or to a court proceeding to sort of determine or or a lawsuit? That would be there's room to argue on both sides there. Correct. I, I think yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's the, why there's such a controversy here is because I think it, it it flew through that the, there was no real challenges by the trademark examiner. It issued in in six months, which is extremely rapid for a trademark to to be registered. Uh, it rarely happens that fast. Um, so I think that's that's probably why. The, the, he probably thought of it as like, oh, River, he's going to have a River Furniture Company. And it's a mm-hmm. arbitrary term. Uh, you know, River and Furniture just don't seem like they have that much in common. Right. But just like a every, general scenic descriptive name. And yeah. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. It sounds like some guy in the wood at the wood shop. Like, yeah, it doesn't sound like what the, it is, which is actually a description of exactly what the tables look like and so if a mark falls into the category that is merely descriptive so there's there's the fanciful and arbitrary there's suggestive there's uh merely descriptive and then there's generic those are the four categories suggestive is something that is is sort of a a area between 
the arbitrary and descriptive. Um, I think an example would be like, uh, you said like a, a fast and easy car wax, like fast right. and easy with respect to car wax. Like it's, there is some suggestion about how it works, but it's a sort of. Right. Or like not, yummy donuts. Right. Yeah. Like, yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a suggestive thing, but it's not, you could use a lot of yummy, tasty. There's lots of other things you can mm-hmm. use. It's not directly and always related to that product. Descriptive or merely descriptive is what that product is. And so I think there's an argument that it's not an arbitrary term. It's not a suggestive term. It's actually a descriptive word because people are saying there's no other word I could use to describe this table in words that tells right. people how it looks. Um, and that's where the the argument is. So um, what what if somebody made a a concrete a table that was all made out of concrete and glass and the concrete was made to look, you know, like two banks of the river with a glass piece in between it. So similar in design composition to Greg's uh, river tables. But because it's made, there's zero, you know, zero wood in it and it has a steel base, would that be, I mean, he, he could probably still file something, but it would... It would be there, very would, difficult because his trademark is limited to goods and services that are furniture prim- made primarily of wood. So right. uh, primarily of, of wood, I think you would probably be... And again, I don't, I don't want to give illegal advice right. on here. I'd say you still should consult an attorney, but I, I think you'd be pretty safe selling a, a piece of furniture with no wood is mm-hmm. probably not going to be covered by a trademark limited to furniture made primarily of wood. Right. So um, it was what you're saying is that he can't own that word in terms of all of its use for woodworking. Right. He can't even necessarily completely own that design composition through this. He has a sort of limited scope as it relates to doing commerce with these things. And then even uh, within that, he has limited scope in terms of legal recourse that makes financial sense on top of it. Correct. So there are there are arguments that people could make. And again, I think this is one of those case by case. But I think you could. Uh, so so I guess this would be uh, if you would ask the question maybe of, okay, so people who are upset, what could they do about this? Or what should they do? If -hmm. they think that this is a descriptive term, it is the best term to describe this type of table. And they're not sure what else they're going to call it. They want to keep selling these. They know they can keep selling tables that look like this, but what do you call it? A, 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 a live edge table that is cut in half with a piece of glass down the middle doesn't have a very good ring to it when you're trying Mm -hmm. to sell something. So what could they do? They, there, there are actually ways to challenge issued trademarks. So, uh, and again, they are expensive, but it, it would be something that you could actually say band together a bunch of people who are all those Etsy sellers who had to take down their ads. If they all feel like, you know, it's worth our money. We're going to make more money by being able to, able to use River and it's worth our money as an investment to make more money selling River tables. They could probably get together as affected parties and uh, file a petition to cancel the the uh, the trademark on the basis that it's a merely descriptive term that should not have been issued by the Patent and Trademark Office. So there are mechanisms uh, other than complaining on Reddit that uh, right. people have if they, so they, if they have a problem. So they can they can they have to hire a lawyer, right. and then the lawyer would sort of file a petition mm-hmm. to do that. Have you ever gone through that kind of proceeding? I actually do not, but I do have folks at my my uh, firm that h- handle those uh, fairly often. So, um, hint, hint. If anyone really wants uh, wants to do this, uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to him. Um, although I tend to like Greg too, so I'm I'm uh, yeah. I'm also happy just to stay out of it too. I like Greg's work. So. And again, I mean, my you know, I, I feel like I can speak a little more freely on this since I don't don't have the legal uh, uh, ramifications that you do. In, in general, I think this whole thing was. Uh, a community issue more than it was a business issue. I feel like the business issue is primarily in between uh, Greg and, uh, you know, Etsy. And I totally understand why he would do that. I think there are implications for some of the other bigger woodworking kind of companies that are big both on social media and have heavily branded themselves and built up a legacy of content that mm-hmm. has descriptive terms and meta tags like river 
right. uh, table. Yes. I mean, the meta tags alone would be a really interesting thing. I have no idea something- what Black Forest is going to do with all their, their... I mean, just... I can't imagine how many days of, like, we're going to have to spend... Edits? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I can I can see how that would be really frustrating on, on their part as well. But, you know... Uh, the again, he's not saying that anyone, and this isn't saying anyone has to stop. And even it, it doesn't even necessarily mean that they have they factually have to stop using the term river table. It just means that there could that could invoke some sort of legal challenge or lawsuit uh, down the road. Right. So right. it's more of a, of a of a warning shot than it is saying you can't or you'll go to jail that's not what you know that's that's not the way this all works so right um yeah i think for you know 99.9% of the the makers this has zero impact um if you're a youtuber and you want to make a river table video i can't imagine unless you know i mean i know maleki has one out there that's that's over a million views but that's that's a good amount of AdSense, but it's not really enough to justify a legal proceeding. Right, right. Well, and he's not selling the... Well, I guess he he did sell that one. But that video is not selling a good or service that competes. So I think... I, I personally think there's an argument, and it would have to be re- researched more, but I think there's an argument that if you're not selling a... A YouTube video is not selling a good or service that competes with Greg's. There could be no confusion as to the source of it and he's not a youtuber right um so what about um what about how how does it sort of work retroactively right like so let's say when when did this trademark get recognized uh i think it was maybe a month ago it's been in the last month or so so is it does it apply retroactively that recognition uh so yeah well remember that he he did he owned this trademark through use. Um, and so on the trademark application, he actually had to put down a first use and a first use in commerce date. Uh, his first use date was in February of 2012. And his first use comment, uh, first use in commerce was in August of 2012. So August um, of 2012. So let's say, does he have to prove that like, I mean, where does this sort of burden of proof, right? Cause there's a lot of people, that never that that one didn't know who he was. Yeah. Um, that felt that. So let's say you made a YouTube video in 2013, and you know it. No one's racked up this many views, but let's say it racked up 100 million views, which would be some serious coin. Um, could you know? Would it be like a fair defense? It's like I didn't know he's this exists, or does ignorance well, is that remember likely? that yeah registration is what allows you to collect damages right mm-hmm. so that's what he did recently and i'm gonna have to look at the exact laws and how that works if there's any sort of retroactive damages but but generally like the registration is what allows you to collect damages so that you can't go back to when you didn't have it registered and say i want to gotcha. have damages uh from that unless i mean there there may be some circumstances where someone like knew or should have known that they were mm-hmm. infringing a trademark um, but that the intent of the trademark infringer plays comes into play a lot when it comes to how damages are assessed for trademark infringement. So, right. So let's say yeah. let's say somebody's a custom woodworker and they sold fifty thousand dollars worth of river tables in two thousand seventeen. Should they be worried about this about the, him coming after that sort of previous revenue, or is that something that because it wasn't it wasn't recognized till a month ago that that sort of as long as they stop now they should be fine so it's going to be difficult for me to say i mean i think in general probably not but i don't want to say definitively yes right. or no because i don't want someone to to act on right. that i would say that uh you know you should probably you know if you're concerned maybe you should still talk to attorney about your specific situation um, but you're probably, unless you knew he was like getting a trademark, you, you're probably okay. Unless he like sends you a letter accusing you of infringement, you're probably not gonna, uh, probably not going to have a, anything come of it. That is probably not the parties that should be the most concerned. I guess I'll put yeah. it that way. That makes sense. Well, I think that that addresses most of my concerns. And again, thanks for doing this. Uh, it's kind of awesome that, you know, you, you, <laughs> It's always nice that within our sort of community, there's somebody that has expertise in a lot of different fields. Um, 
we need to find more like doctors and nutritionists that are also <laughs> yeah, hobbyist yeah, uh, awesome. woodworkers and makers. But uh, uh, thanks, Mike, for for joining us. And where can people find more? Not so much about your legal stuff, uh, but more about your making stuff. So, uh, Industrial Maker, the my YouTube channel, and uh, Industrial Maker on Instagram um, are are where I'm usually at. And I also have have a website, industrialmaker.com. Sounds good. All right, Mike. Thanks again. Well, thank you for listening to this episode and big thanks to Mike Clifford from Industrial Maker for hopping on this episode. We are at Modern Builds, at Four Eyes Furniture, and at Benjamin Ueda on YouTube. Collectively, we are at Modern Maker Podcast and holy cow, we've got way too many Instagram handles, at Maker Brand Co. We've been getting so much feedback on the simple finish. The samples that have gone out have reached people and they're loving it so far. I haven't heard anything negative. Have you guys? I haven't, but if you think of anything negative when you're using it, do tell us. Don't, you know, don't just tell us what we want to hear. We want to hear everything. Exactly. In fact, I got forwarded a really great email that got sent to our info at Maker Brand Co. And it was someone that used our finish on boxes for either wedding rings or engagement rings. Yeah, I think to propose. Yeah. How cool is that? I know. So guys, if you're single, you're struggling a little bit, might be the All it takes. All it takes is a little simple finish. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. www.makerbrandco.com. Bye, everybody. Bye. Later.